chapter 1, 27. To them, God chose to make known the great among the Gentiles, a rich of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that, the power, that he powerfully works within me. Amen? We, along with Paul, want to bring to maturity everyone, including ourselves, those in our household, because Christ is the only hope that we have. Amen? Christ is our hope. Amen. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. Now, if uh, you are three to ten years old, you may be dismissed to our uh, to the side over here with everybody with the blue shirt, except Riley, who didn't bring his blue shirt. Um, uh, you are more than welcome to go. Actually, um, and if you would, would you please stand? And I would like you to meet somebody for maybe more than a minute or two and uh, get to know them, ask them some deep questions, and even ask them if you can pray for them. All right. All right, if you guys want to start gathering back to your seats. Wow. Great, great, great. Now, um, I am so excited about being with you. I always love worshiping our King together. I wanted to say uh, welcome. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to the book of Exodus. But before we do, I want to give honor where honor is due. And there is somebody in the room that I just really have been wanting to honor because of their selflessness. And it goes really in hand in hand with what we're going to end up talking about near the end. But uh, I just want to say uh, Steve Smith, is, uh, totally <laughs> his mouth just dropped. He's the guy in the orange standing up in the back. Well... 
Now, I was going to call you forward, but I knew that that would make you hyperventilate. Um, But um, I just want to say this man is a man of God, and he loves the Word, and he loves God's people, and he loves God. If you, if you want to know about the Word, go talk to Steve. He is a Bible man. And uh, many of us men have learned a lot from him, but uh, one of the main things is that he is probably one of our most unsung heroes when it comes to deaconing. He is a great deacon. Uh, he serves this church selflessly. Uh, he runs the security team to help keep us safe. He helps organize our setup crew, and, uh, and he even comes in during the week and glues in these screws that keep falling out of the bottom of your chairs. I mean, this guy does everything. He put the stickers on the side of our trailer, and it's not like he loves to do all that stuff. Um, he just loves you, and that is an awesome thing, and I just wanted to say thank you, Steve. I love you. I look up to you. Uh, we all love you, so thank you for all that you do. All right, he'll punch me later. Uh, But open your Bibles with me to Exodus 20, 13, verse 13. If you are visiting with us, I want to say welcome. I want to say welcome. We hope that you feel right at home as we all stand side by side and we worship our Father God together. And, uh, And also as we learn from his word together. We have been spending this summer in a series called the Ten Commandments, where each week we take one commandment and we dive into that together and we explore all the riches that God has for us within that commandment. And so today we find ourselves in the sixth commandment. So uh, if, if you would, would you please stand with me as I read verses 1 through 13, leading us up to the sixth commandment. These are the words of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Number five. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land and that, that the Lord your God is giving you. And number six, you shall not murder. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. You shall not murder. That's it. That's the, that's the whole, whole passage that we're studying. And that's... Pretty much the sermon, so uh, if the worship team could come forward, um, 
It's pretty, uh, it's not very big. In fact, it's actually smaller than you think. In, in Hebrew, in the original language, it's actually only two words, no murder. At first glance, there's the temptation to, to detach ourselves from this commandment. I mean, if, if, if you can't, out of all the Ten Commandments, this one is the assumed one, right? If you go out and ask a thousand people uh, if uh, murder is wrong, a thousand of them most likely will say, yes, it's, it's wrong. And you may even say to yourself, this command is good for someone, maybe someone in this room, not anybody that I would know. But I mean, and I'm glad that it's in the Bible, but this is something that I seem to have down, Pastor. I have yet to murder anyone. So if uh, everyone knows that murder is wrong, then why do we even mention it? Why did God chisel it on the second tablet? Because murder is not something that is far off. It's not a far off issue that has nothing to do with us, but it's near and even nearer than we might realize. So today we're exploring the meaning of this command, what it reveals about God, what it reveals about us and ourselves, and ultimately what it demands in response But before we begin, we must ask the Lord's blessing on his word and on our hearts that we be receptive to what he may have to say to us today. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your word is true. Your word is pure. And I pray that if there's anything that is spoken out of my own selfishness or my own heart, I pray that nobody in here remembers a word of it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak your word of truth in love and mercy onto our hearts. I pray you save people who may not know you. I pray you mature us who do. Oh God, we love you so much. Take blinders off our eyes. Remove distractions from our minds. Help us lean in and help us to love those who are sitting next to us. May we be in a state of constant prayer in this message and beyond. We love you. You are our king. You are our creator. You are our father. You are our Lord. All these things we lift up in the holy name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, it all, it all began with two brothers, two typical brothers, uh, most likely who played together. They loved their parents. They laughed. They argued. They compared and competed in everything. The older brother, a hard worker, uh, was a farmer, and the younger was a herdsman. Both worked hard and both gave gifts to the Lord when the time called for it. But one day something changed. One day the Lord looked favorably at the younger brother. We don't really know why, and we don't really know what that looked like, but it caused the older brother to get discouraged, very discouraged, even angry, and then God told him to be careful because sin is crouching, ready to leap upon these untamed emotional responses. God, as always, was right, and uh, the anger overwhelmed the older brother so much that He convinced his little brother to walk into a field and is there where Cain attacked and murdered his little brother Abel. And then he did something strange. He responded to God. When when God uh, talked to him about this and confronted him, Cain responded dispassionately and indifferently, saying, 
Am I my brother's keeper? What the story of Genesis 4 tells us is that murder is more than just a behavior issue. It's an issue of the heart. One where even someone who has spoken to God himself can can be lulled asleep to the point of killing his own brother. Or maybe you might say to me uh, off of that um, passage, you say, well, that was a long time ago. That was Old Testament. That was... uh, OG Jesus. That was OG God. He was the, the, the hard one, right? Well, murder isn't just a distant thing. It's, it's even here and now. Yesterday morning in El Paso, Texas, a gunman wielding an assault rifle walked into a busy Walmart without provocation. He murdered 20 and injuring 26. This was yesterday, which came a day after a shooter in California at a garlic festival, wounding 12 and killing three, including a six-year-old boy. And then this morning at 1 a.m. in Dayton, Ohio, a shooter opened fire in a crowded street, killing nine and wounded six. This is our reality, brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter how many... um, suburbs we create and big houses we make we can't run from the reality that murder is around us and murder is within us and uh i it's not just a history's past issue but i do say this pun intended murder is alive and well here and now and yet we will see today that it's not just a legal issue it's not just a behavioral issue but it's a moral issue It's a heart issue. It's a spiritual warfare issue. And ultimately, I believe it's an identity issue. So as we explore this commandment together, I want to ask us pretty much five questions. And you may have them in your sermon notes. You may not uh, because we had a little problem with our printer. So if you have sermon notes in your worship guide, great. Follow along. But there are five main questions that I want to ask. So the first question we need to ask is, what is murder? You shall not murder. Or if you're reading in the King James Bible, it should should say, thou shalt not kill. Well, just like in English, when we ask what is murder, just like in English, Hebrew has two words when it comes to taking of life. Katal means to kill, and ratzak means to murder. The difference between the two is enormous. Kill and murder. Katal means the taking of any life deliberately or by accident, and taking a human life legally or illegally, morally or immorally. Ratzak, on the other hand, is murder. The illegal or immoral taking of life. So, which one is used in Exodus 20, verse 13? Ratzak, murder. So to put it plainly, the word murder here in the Sixth Commandment refers to the taking of a human life with intention or premeditation through personal governance, not civil or theocratic. Murder, taking of the life, premeditated through personal governance, your own choice, your own desire, not going through a due process. This definition is important to lay out because much of the confusion in our culture regarding this commandment is a misunderstanding and a misappropriation of the word murder and the word kill. To equate murder with kill can lead to all kinds of false thinking. What about self-defense? So if, if it was thou shalt not kill, if that's an appropriate um, interpretation, what about self-defense? 
then you should not hold a position of, you should hold a position of extreme pacifism. If, if somebody breaks into your house, you cannot defend yourself. But we know through Exodus 22, verses 2 through 3, that uh, it does not prohibit self-defense. If a thief is breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt. Or what about wars? If it's kill, then the very concept of a just war is void. What about the wars that God commanded in Scripture? Why would he tell his people to not kill and then command them in the very next breath? This we know, that the Bible does not present God as a pacifist. God at times commands the taking of life and even does so himself throughout Scripture, not just Old Testament God, but New Testament God. Ananias and Sapphira, for example, were killed by God in church because of their sin regarding tithing. (laughs) There is an apparent shift uh, in the Old Testament to the New Testament, but it's not a complete abolishment. It is apparent in Scripture that there are times when life is to be taken, but those are to be very rare and to go through an appropriate governance and moral justification. But murder is never, never permissible in Scripture. Murder is never permissible. That's number one. What, what is murder? But the second question I think we need to ask is why is murder wrong? If I were to pull the room and uh, ask for reasons why uh, murder is wrong, I'm sure we'd come up with a lot of reasons, right? Uh, but I just want to... St- Basically, there's so much in this message I want to just kind of uh, get to that I'm just going to skip past some of the, the, the surface level reasons of why murder is wrong and just really get to the heart of the matter. There's a bankrupt view of the source and purpose of life in our culture. We live in a world where God is repeatedly ignored and removed from the center and we place ourselves at the center of things. We live in a world where truth is relative, unless it's mine, it's relative. Your truth is relative, unless it's, it's my truth. Um, we live in a world where personal happiness and desires steer the ship of our life. Hedonism is the driving worldview in our corrupt culture, and therefore our authority exists not from an understood, unmoving, external divine Lord, but from our own internal desires and impulses. I sat with a young man who goes to Duke, um, who's sitting over in this side over here. I'm not going to point him out because he will kill me. Um, this week I talked to him and we talked about hedonism and the dangers of hedonism and how it, uh, it corrupts. And that's, that's exactly what, it, what the case is. We put ourselves on the throne and we follow our own internal desires and impulses. What does he- hedonism say to you? What does the culture say? It says that you don't have a purpose or a plan in your life except to consume and enjoy. Do what you can to make your life happy and enjoyable. This is tied very closely to the, 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 the view of the survival of the fittest. Have you ever heard of that? The evolutionary view, survival of the fittest? It's, a, it's the most widely believed but rarely discussed to its fruition. At its core, survival of the fittest is hedonistic, and it's about the individual. It's about yourself. Logically, if someone holds this view without holding to a moral code of ethics established externally, like from God, what is to condemn a person from taking out anyone who stands in the way from your own happiness? If they get in your way or they're consuming something you want to consume, 
remove them, right? But a biblical worldview is different. It's countercultural. Did you know that the 20th century, the 20th century is the most bloody century in the history of the world, where four men alone killed 175 million people. And they weren't Bible-believing Christians. They were more evolved than that group, than these other groups, so that we have the right to end their life of anyone who is unequal or unfit. That's the worldview, a hedonistic, secular hedonistic worldview that we are at odds with in our culture. It would feel awkward in here for a secular hedonistic because we talk about giving him glory and honor and praise above yourself. But biblical worldview takes the, the self off the throne and places creator God back in the preeminent authority of our lives. And I know this sounds simplistic, but it is such a better way, right? Than putting yourself on the throne of your life in, the, in this driving with Jesus, take the wheel, right? But instead of putting yourself in there, putting Christ at it. Because God alone created life. He created the world and pleasures therein. My hedonistic impulses will change all the time. What makes me happy will change all the time. And it can lead me into some messed up situations. Amen? Anybody else? Just me and Steve. That's it. That's it. All right. Good. Okay. It, le- it leads me into horrible situations. But, but the God who sees all and is in all directs the life of his people. He, is, he has ultimate sovereignty and authority over human life because he designed human life. And here's the kicker. Here's the point. Here's why I, uh, the main reasons why I think murder is wrong. Because he designed human life in a way that made us in his image. The author of the script, the author of the story, made characters in his image. Let us make man in our image. So God created them man and woman in his image. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is a different an- than an animal. He created humans in his image. Animals do not bear the image of God. I come from Washington State. PETA, right? Anybody know about PETA? Okay. Humans bear the image of God. We should not be cruel to animals. We should not be cruel to animals. But I am saying that there's a distinct difference between um, image bearers and animals. And here's an example. I love my dog, Bailey. That's debatable. My, my wife thinks I don't. I do love my dog, Bailey, 90% of the time. But if I were to ru- run home after work and our house was engulfed in flames and I had a choice between Asher and ba- bad example, if I had a choice between Hattie and Bailey, <laughs> just kidding, I love Asher. He's my buddy. If I had a choice between any of my kids and Bailey, I would try for both. But if I can't, I guess I'm getting another dog. That's not really debatable because one bears the image of the creator God. Amen? One bears the image of the creator God. And I would, I would shed a tear for Bailey. One. Just one. The inherent value of human life is, is in, in the biblical worldview because you were made on purpose with a purpose in the image of the creator. And this is what I meant when I said that murder is an identity issue. We're not to murder fellow image bearers. 
So why is murder wrong? Here's those two fundamental reasons. Because it steals authority away from the author and places it on yourself. It puts yourself on the throne. It steals authority from the author. That's the first reason why I think it's, it's wrong. The second is it directly assaults the very image of the creator and the life that he gives. Genesis 9, verse 6. This is before the, command, the, ten, the sixth commandment was written. In Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by men shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. That is a biblical worldview. You're not an accident. You're not a random act of evolutionary process. You are an image bearer of God. So to murder a person is to do violence against the God who made them. It's not just to do violence against that person. They bear the image of God. It's to do violence against the God who made them. And I need to mention this. I need to mention this. And I also believe that murder is a spiritual warfare issue. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, of a group that wants to murder him, he says, you are like your father. The father, your father is the devil, and he's been a murderer since the beginning. It's true, isn't it? We see in scripture that, that Satan comes to steal kill, and destroy. He loves it when a life is taken wrongly, unjustly, prematurely, because he was a murderer from the beginning. God gives life. Satan tries to end it. Murder of another image bearer does violence against the God who made them. Murderers are fighting on the wrong side. So, we have explored the meaning of the Sixth Commandment, asking the questions of what and why. Often, many people stop there, okay, we know it's wrong, and we know the reasons why it's wrong. Because it steals authority, and we are created in God's image, so it's an attack on the Creator God. But, um, as I mentioned before, murder is more than just a behavior. Um, It's closer than we think. And Jesus takes this command, and then he reveals it, its depth, beneath the surface. He transforms it. So number three in your notes, how did Jesus transform the sixth commandment? That's the third question. How did Jesus transform the sixth commandment? Well, Jesus took the command and he elevated it. All the Pharisees were saying the same thing that I was saying before I started really getting into reading the word. Oh, I didn't murder. Check. Did not commit murder. Done. Haven't done that one yet. Don't plan on it. But he elevated the issue. What does he say? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in verse 21, speaks to this. Matthew chapter 5, he elevates the original commandment. While everybody says, don't commit murder, he says this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders excuse me, will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa, what just happened? So Jesus took this external physical thing, this behavior thing, right, murder, and he said it's, a, it's an issue of the heart. Whoever hates his brother. Sixth commandment doesn't only prohibit murderous acts of violence, but it also prohibits violent emotions and intentions of your heart. 
This means somebody could be here today. Somebody could be here today, never laid a finger on anybody else, and still break the sixth commandment and still face the wrath of God on judgment day because anger and hatred and violence that resides in their heart. That, as Rebecca Gray said in prayer this morning, kind of levels the playing field, doesn't it? Kind of levels the playing field. We look at other people who murder, oh, well, they're the murderers. No, he's saying if you have hatred, anger, violence in your heart, you are a murderer too, just as guilty. The hard truth is that you and I have committed murder in our heart probably this week probably weekly. Jesus clearly teaches that hatred internally is akin to murder externally, and not just Jesus, but other writers throughout the inspiration of the Holy Spirit agree. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that eternal life does not reside in a murderer. Hatred kills one another. So if the opposite of death is life, what is the opposite of hate? Love. We are commanded not to be filled with murder or hate, but we're commanded to be filled with love. Brothers and sisters, love is the primary responsibility for image bearers when it comes to valuing life, valuing life with one another. Filling your heart with love leaves no room for hate. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5, 4. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And there are so many more verses saying the same thing. Love God and love others. Give no room for hate to inhabit your heart. Oh, Holy Spirit, will you make this a reality in us? That make us a people who are marked by love. Not bitterness, jealousy, anger, hate, or malice. I know it's a funny thing that we're studying this commandment and then Jesus just raises the stakes. Uh, I thought I was obeying it, but now I guess I'm not obeying it. But I want to encourage you. That mo- this moves us quickly to our fourth question. Okay, if that's the reality, if we are on the same playing field with everyone, if we've ever harbored bitterness, anger, hate in our heart for anyone else, we are subject to the wrath of God. But that points us to the fourth Uh, question. How is the sixth commandment connected to the cross? Jesus is the perfect keeper of the law and fulfilled the law. And we can see that his heart was filled with love by his work on the cross. Now the irony, before we even get into this point, the irony is not lost on us or on me or on all of us, that the perfect one who didn't deserve punishment, who kept the law by not murdering, either externally or internally, this guy who, the only one who did not commit murder in his heart or physically, was murdered by the ones who he came to save. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What's the next verse? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that through his son, the world might be saved. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all, and those who, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 1 Thessalonians 5.10, He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Jesus on the cross demonstrates Father God's love for the world and his value of eternal life. By God's grace, we who are guilty can be made right with him through Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection defeated death. Through being killed, Jesus killed the penalty of murder. He brought life to light through the gospel, as Colossians tells us. If you have not put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, then you will stand guilty before God on this commandment alone. Though you may not have bloody hands physically, your heart pronounces you guilty. We need an all-sufficient Savior to pay that penalty, and that Savior is Christ. So if this is you, please come to the front afterwards, and I want to pray with you. I want to talk to you about my Jesus. But that leads us to the last commandment, uh, or the last question, the fifth question. How do we obey the sixth commandment? What does this have to say to us today? No murder. Okay, again, that's for the shooters who just shot up three different places in 48 hours. No, it's for us. And this is the portion of the message where some of you may get angry at me. You may walk out of here in disagreement, or you may walk out of here and not want to return. Because you may feel that I might be promoting a political party or a political stance. And I'm not. And please hear me before I say anything. (laughs) Murder is not a political issue governed by the state. It is a spiritual issue. It's an eternal issue. It's a biblical issue. Amen? There are three exhortations I want to give to you before we end. The first, oh my goodness, is that we need to value all of life. We need to value it. We need to celebrate it. We need to protect it, and we need to preserve life as best as you can. This doesn't mean that we can't go hunting. I hope I made that clear. There's a difference, and there's lots of passages I can talk to you about that. I went hunting once. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) I don't even care for it. (laughs) But what it does mean is that we must live with a value and a tenderness for all living things, especially image bearers under the authority of the life giver? Does your heart break when you see carnage on a screen? Do you hurt when you see a nation go to war, whether it's just or not? When you pass by a car wreck, are you more concerned with the inconvenience of your time or the people that are in the car wreck? My mind goes to the Philippines when I was a seven-year-old boy um, over there for a month with my family, visiting my, in my family who's missionaries there. And I witnessed some of the worst things as a seven-year-old where beggars come to the window and knock on the window where their parents have gouged out their kids' eyes so that they could get more money, more sympathy. 
these little image bearers hurt and starved for financial gain. This should not be and it should break us. We need to value life. Sex trafficking should break us. It shouldn't be something that, oh, those people somewhere else do uh, 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 try to fix. No, we need to protect and preserve life. Celebrate life because they are image bearers of God. Christians must seek to protect and preserve life in all areas, which means we, as believers, supported by Scripture, we do not support infanticide, abortion, suicide, euthanasia, acts of terrorism. And I understand that some of those things carry baggage with people in this room. Largely because of past experiences. And others may paint some of these areas as gray. But I humbly ask you to go home. Don't take my word for it. Read the scriptures. Search the scriptures. Don't search CNN or Fox News. God's word is profitable in this area. All things that constitute murder are wrong. And yes, I say as clearly and as tenderly as possible as a person who has much to lose regarding friendships because all my Facebook friends, over half of them are from where I'm from. It's not easy. It's easier in the South to be able to say something like this. It's harder to post stuff like that. But abortion is wrong in the sight of God. It destroys a life, an image bearer, Passage after passage tells us how God was present at work in the womb. And, and though it may be a little person, it is still a person in the image and likeness of God. And a Bible-believing follower cannot both praise the giver of life and then take the life that he gives and end it for our own convenience. And I know a lot of people would say, but what about this and what about that? Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. But I need to say that a life is a life given by God. David, that's so cold. You don't know what I went through. You don't know what I struggle with. You don't know what happened to me. You don't know my mom. You don't know my sister. You don't know my cousin. I need to tell you, I understand what gray is. I saw a doctor seven months ago A specialist because as Haley and I heard the doctor describe that our unborn baby has an un, a chromosomal abnormality and will not be compatible with life. Seven months ago, if he makes it to birth, he'll be bedridden for life, which most likely would be brief. My world, have you ever been in a situation where your world speeds up and slows down all at the same time? And then the doctor says, in a very kind way, very tenderly too, but he says that, this mo- that most mothers at this point choose to terminate the pregnancy. <laughs> I know what gray feels like. The financial burden that could come. What's going to happen? This is not the right time for this. 
and I looked at my wife who sat upright with love in her eyes and she strength of a lion and said, that's not an option. A life is a life given by God, not just conceptually, but in action, and we celebrate it. The seven hours I got to spend with my son after he was born was the most beautiful hours because we celebrated the life and the image of God that was on John Levi. Celebrate it, protect it, preserve it. It is a spiritual warfare issue. Christian, value life. And if you have experiences that you think are gray, let me weep with you in the gray. Come to me, talk to me, let's pray. I know what that feels like. The second exhortation that I want to say is, please guard your heart. Oh, goodness, thank you. Terry. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Guard your heart. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Matthew 15, 19. We must learn to guard our heart and the heart of our kids. How do we do that? There's two things I really want to tell you to do to guard your heart. One, watch your speech. Proverbs 18, 21, life and death are in the power of the tongue. You are an image bearer of God and have the power to speak life and death. Do you employ language that will build up or tear down? Do you know the Greek word, sarcosmos? is where we get the word sarcasm. You know what that means? It means to bite or devour flesh. When we use sarcasm in an unhealthy way, if there's a healthy way, we participate in speaking death into one another. And I am the most guilty in this room. If you have a relationship with me, you know I use sarcasm as a spiritual gift. But, we got to guard our, guard our heart by guarding our words, too. We don't tear each other down. We build each other up. The second thing I want to encourage you to guard your heart is, what are you watching? Proverbs 8.36 says, All who hate me love death. The secular worldview hates God so much that death has become a fixation. Isn't that true? Do you know that before a child finishes elementary, they will have witnessed over 8,000 murders? But get this, by the time they graduate high school, 80,000 murders through television, video games, and movies, especially video games. Goodness. (laughs) Don't believe me? Watch some YouTube uh, uh, documentaries on Columbine or any of these mass shootings, school shootings, they'll tell you that their diet consisted of violence and gore, whether it was music, movies, television, video games, almost exclusively, it started with that, and pornography. It's not a separate issue, but it's intimately connected. We have become numb to death, not realizing the spiritual warfare implications. And again, I am just as guilty as everyone because I love a good war movie. War movie. 
Like, I mean, who doesn't want to watch Gladiator? Are you not entertained? I love Gladiator. But be careful on what we gaze on because we can be desensitized over time. And it's not, it's not even debatable um, with amount, the amount of people, uh, like I said, documentaries. I'm not saying that, uh, by the way, I'm not saying that movies with vi- certain movies with violence are, are, are bad necessarily, but I am saying that our diet as a people is way out of whack. We just want, want all this all the time, and we become desensitized to it. Speaking of Gladiator, and uh, anybody ever been to Rome in the Colosseum? Yeah? All right, yeah. Well, I used to lead trips and, uh, used to, and in Rome in the Colosseum. One of the things we did with students is uh, uh, used to tell a story of St. Timelicus, who was a monk, and he's a perfect example of someone who was isolated from violence and then entered into a culture where violence was celebrated. 400 A.D., St. Timelicus was from the nation of Turkey, and he felt the call of the Lord to walk. And he didn't know why, and he didn't know where he was going, but he started going, and he went from Turkey, and he went over to Italy, and he found himself in Rome. And he knew he ne- the Lord wanted him to do something, he didn't know what. And as he entered into Rome, he sees hordes of people flooding uh, down the streets, and so he just joins them. And he walks down the street with them. And then they walk into this big coliseum. He's never experienced anything like that. So he, he goes up and takes his seat. This little monk takes his seat alongside everybody else and then out marches this Caesar and takes his seat. And then these two strong gladiators stand in the middle. Thousands of people cheering. And they say, we who are about to die salute you. St. Timelicus. <laughs> he gets, what is happening? So fight after fight happens and they're starting to try to kill each other, stabbing each other. St. Timelicus stands up in the seat and he yells, in the name of Christ, Stop. Nobody hears him. Everybody's cheering for the gore and the violence. And so he runs down the steps yelling, in the name of Christ, stop. Nobody, nobody hears him. So he jumps on the barrier in the Colosseum and he yells, in the name of Christ, stop. The gladiators couldn't hear him. So this little monk jumps into the auditorium and he runs from gladiator to gladiator in the name of Christ, stop! The, the crowd gets agitated and uh, an account from a bishop at the time, the crowd became so enraged that he would dare interfere with the entertainment that they stoned him to death for their enjoyment. The Caesar the emperor, Honorus, he, he was apparently Christian. But he was so moved by this martyr, the selfless act that he disbanded the games thereafter. And the Colosseum has never been used for gladiator fighting since. So that, guard your heart. 
And, and you'll find, if you remove yourself for a time, you'll find your, your appetite change. What you gaze upon isn't appetizing anymore. You'll celebrate and value life. And what leads us to my last exhortation, imitate the sun. St. Timelicus imitated, I have no doubt, that's what Jesus would have done. John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Who better demonstrates that kind of love than Christ himself? Philippians 2 reveals that we must have the same mind of, uh, of love in Christ and humility to value others above yourself. In a culture where you are told everything is about your own pleasure, your own good, we have a God who demonstrated humility by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, brothers and sisters, we are called to imitate the Son. Imitate Christ in his humility and love for one another. First John 3:11 says, "For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Believers, don't imitate Cain. Imitate Christ. May we be a people who are looked upon by the world as strange and backwards, because instead of protecting ourselves, we lay down our life so that others may live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am so thankful for you. You gave us good gifts of your Father, of your Son, and your Word. We know you because you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And I pray, Lord, do a work in our hearts so that we walk away not just informed by your word, but transformed into a new way of thinking. Protect us, God, as we go out and protect our children, protect one another. Guard our hearts, God, because we can't guard ourselves. And thank you for your forgiveness, because in you we have freedom, freedom indeed. We love you. In your name, amen.